0: Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation, in which Jeremy Hardy skirts around the issues of the day and then makes little stabs at them, like a vegetarian who's been served proper food in error. (laughs) Tonight, How to Believe. Hello and welcome to the second of what promised to be four events to mark United Nations International Year of the Radio Broadcaster. Tonight I shall be tackling the vexed issue of Belief, both religious and secular. But first, I should like to introduce my two guests. Firstly, an old friend of the programme, Alison Steadman. Hello. And also a very welcome addition to the Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation family, Ewan Bailey. Hello. Now, Ewan, who are you? Uh, I'm an actor. Do you have any means of identification? Uh... Well, I've got an equity card. No, I need photo ID, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, Please understand, these are routine security questions. The more you cooperate, the more quickly we'll be on our way. Yeah, I understand. Please don't become abusive. No, 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 I'm not. I understand. (laughs) Climate of terror and all that. What do you know about the climate of terror? (laughs) Nothing, honestly. I'm just saying... If you become aggressive, I shall have to restrain you. You won't be able to, Jeremy. What? You're a tiny little man, and I'm much bigger than you. (laughs) Are you threatening me? A little bit, Yeah. Okay, well, everything appears to be in order. Can I put my clothes back on? Yeah. (laughs) Now, Alison, of course, we work together on Graham Garden and Barry Cry's You'll Have Had Your Tea, a hard-hitting and at times accent-based comedy drama, (laughs) which which offers an earthy insight into a gritty taste of Scottish slice. But you also do a bit of West End theatre to keep your hand in when you haven't got any proper work. (laughs) Now, what? we're talking in this programme about belief. And, of course, in the theatre, audiences have to suspend their disbelief because the ticket prices are an outrage <laughs> and the bar is a poorly stocked cubbyhole understaffed by moon calves. <clears throat> but, Alison, as one of our best-known and most respected British actors, how do you get punters to make believe? So they stop thinking, oh, there's that woman who's in that thing.
1: Uh, well, you have to believe in the character yourself.
0: Yeah, but they're all made up, aren't they?
1: Well, not always. You get historical figures like Joan of Arc, Mary, Queen of Scots. Miss Saigon? No, she's not one.
0: Oh, how about that woman who married the fascist?
1: Diana Mitford?
0: No, no, the singing one. Eva Peron? No, no, Evita. No, that was Eva Peron. No, it wasn't. It was Madonna. (laughs) Una Paloma Blanca, I'm an old tart who likes clothes. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 my mistake, yeah. It's okay. don't worry. Anywho, on with the programme.
1: Can I put my clothes on now?
0: I'm afraid not, Alison. You've no idea how many years I've waited for this opportunity.
1: (laughs) Well, can I turn the fan heater up? Oh,
0: no, this fan's already hot. So, so, how to believe. Someone once said that seeing is believing, which is not the case. I've seen Tony Blair. And (laughs) A great many people the world over believe in things they haven't seen. Although this then means that sometimes they start to see things. If someone says they've seen a ghost or aliens or the face of Liberace in a bagel, we're supposed to think, well, that's it then, incontrovertible proof that these things truly exist. And we might do if the person who saw them didn't also crush puppies by stroking them too hard. (laughs) If God or extraterrestrials or spirits want to be taken seriously, they need to reveal themselves to respected documentary filmmakers, (laughs) not to disturbed people in rural communities. (laughs) And it never occurs to people who've had a divine revelation that for Jesus to single them out seems unlikely. Surely Jesus would want to meet someone really interesting, given that he has the power to befriend anyone in the world. Wouldn't he have wanted to meet Johnny Cash? I would love to have met Johnny Cash. And if I'd had the opportunity, I'd have been completely tongue-tied. I'd have just said... You're Johnny Cash! But Jesus would have known what to say, and Johnny would have really liked to meet him. And Jesus could have said, I'm such a fan. And Johnny could have said, well, likewise. And they they could have compared gigs, and Jesus could have said, it's hard entertaining 5,000 Jewish people who haven't eaten. And Johnny could have said, it's hard entertaining 500 convicts who haven't had sex for several years. Jesus would have laughed and they would have talked about God and Jesus could have said that he was a bit remote as a father and Johnny could have talked about how hard it must have been for God as a dad being that famous and always having to be everywhere at once and (laughs) Johnny could have asked Jesus whether he should start taking Holy Communion and Jesus could have said, no, it's horrible when everyone wants a piece of you and... (laughs) Jesus could have asked Johnny if Willie Nelson is as nice as he seems, and Johnny could have said yes, and for Johnny Cash, years of soul-searching would have been worth it, all his questions would have been answered, and he'd have been at peace with himself, and his last three albums would have been terrible. So that's why Jesus (laughs) left him to it. But I can't help thinking, the fact that Jesus fails to appear to most people means that his true beliefs are lost. He is just claimed by people interpreting versions of stuff. All religious texts took years to be nailed down as accepted doctrine. They are products of a mishmash of older faiths, rumblings of social dissent, co-option by political rulers, and the visions experienced by saints and prophets, which are clearly It's a wonder no one ever had a vision of God in which he appeared as the conductor of a bus in which they were sitting on the top deck naked. (laughs) So why do we tend to see religious belief as a sign of propriety? People are considered upright and respectable. If they are God-fearing, I am afraid of slugs, but considered soppy for it. (laughs) But I also think that we must recognise that religious belief can go right to the core of a person in a way that secular ideology seldom does. Banning a woman from wearing her crucifix or veil at work hurts her more deeply than banning her from wearing her National Secular Society cagoule. (laughs) Why she wears all three is another question, It's good to accessorise. In fact, the teachings of Christ or the Prophet themselves don't seem to dictate the wearing of crosses or veils. Christ would have every reason to get the heebie-jeebies if upon his second coming he were met by devotees supporting a tasteful symbol of the means of his execution. (laughs) At least Protestants tend to be understated, with no actual man on the cross. Catholics leave him up there as a warning to others. Perhaps as a warning to Jesus, should he start to kick off about what the flip has been going on in his name this past 2,000 years? <laughs> in fact, he might wish to raise a number of issues. People, hello. See, you might or might not know that I'm Jewish. I don't have a chip about it, but I notice you've called the church the Roman Catholic Church. I
1: have some issues about the Romans, but OK, I can forgive them. They knew not what they were doing. <laughs>
0: so, fair enough. You base the church in Rome... I led a non violent national liberation struggle against the Roman Empire, but you put holy in front of it, which I suppose covers a multitude of sins. So, okay, I can cope with the Roman Catholic Church. Fine. It's run by a German. Nice touch. Thanks a bunch. It's hard to know what Jesus believed, but there's no evidence in any of the scriptures that he was trying to build a new religion around himself. He didn't rename Judaism or drag it to the right, call it New Testament and get it to ditch commandment four or amend it to love thy neighbour as thyself but grass them up if they work while claiming benefit. in fact, he tried to stem the encroachment of market values, self-interest and bureaucracy. He was trying to lead people back to his father, not sideline him and take his whole shtick like Matthew Corbett. (laughs) Jesus was upholding Judaism, the faith that seems to have introduced the idea of a single God. Until then, gods were just rather remote local bigwigs with the power to ruin your harvest, like immigration officers checking work permits. (laughs) It's in the Torah, or the Old Testament, that we start to have what appears to be the word of God written down in unchallengeable form. God's code for living appears mostly in Leviticus when God is instructing the Jews as they meander about in the desert taking a long time to travel quite a short distance. A lot of very short-sighted people arguing over the best way to get to Jericho avoiding the Sinai geratory system. (laughs) Jewish dietary laws were wholly appropriate to people living in those conditions, but conditions have changed, which means that observant Jews should follow them only when camping, which (laughs) Jewish people never do. (laughs) We let you choose last time, Moses. From now on, it's hotels. But the bit of the Torah everyone knows about is the Ten Commandments, even if we can't remember all of them. Most religions have much to commend them, and I should have thought the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, is one of the best and most under-observed bits of religious dogma to be found anywhere. But then God spoils it with number ten, the coveting commandment. He's only got two tablets of stone on which to fit the worst things he can possibly imagine, and one of them is coveting your neighbour's ox. (laughs) I think this is evidence of a God with a lack of proportion. No one's killed the ox, no one's had a romantic liaison with it. No-one's even stolen it or gone equipped to do so. All that's happened is a bloke's looked over the fence at his neighbour's ox and thought, Jammy bastard. (laughs) Nonetheless, this founding statement given to Moses, which appears to be based on earlier pagan ideas, is recognised in Judaism, Christianity and Islam, the three Abrahamic religions, which are all variations on the same theme. Three great conflicting belief systems, but all with the same accountant. (laughs) And in various times and places, all three religions have happily coexisted. The fact that many British Muslims feel so alienated is not because of theology, it's because of government policies. And when the government claims it's trying to reach out to moderate Muslims, we have to ask what politicians mean by the word moderate. Charles Kennedy assured us that he was a moderate drinker. He meant he was a liberal alcoholic. (laughs) But what is moderate about a government that has us continuously at war and tears up civil liberties in the name of freedom? Ministers don't listen to British Muslims, they bully them. The Home Secretary John Reid's efforts to reach out to Muslims consist of going to deprived areas of East London to hector Muslim parents about how they need to stop their children from being influenced by extremism. See you, Muslims. It's all done to use. You've got to stop your
1: kids' heads being filled with shite by the mad mullahs down at the Mosquito, or whatever you call it. It's your
0: responsibility. Nothing to do with us, right? It's your fault if they get indoctrinated by crazy, vanity bastards. Can you what I'm saying? As though parents of teenagers in London don't have enough on their plates already. I'm the parent of a 16-year-old, and when she's on her way home from school, I'm thinking, I hope she doesn't get stabbed, I hope she doesn't get robbed, I hope she doesn't get pregnant, I hope she doesn't get drunk, I hope she doesn't buy drugs, I hope she doesn't sell drugs, and I hope she's careful crossing the road. Being indoctrinated by extremists is some way down my list of concerns. (laughs) I think the fact is Muslims are just having to hold a scapegoat batter until the Bulgarians arrive. <laughs> and Reid's behaviour does little to dispel the Muslim fear that Christians, such as he and Tony Blair and George Bush, are on a crusade against Islam. And one thing that Bush and Blair share with Abu Hamza and Osama bin Laden is the idea that they are in direct communication with God. So we have a dichotomy. On the one hand, religion teaches people there are things more important than themselves. On the other hand, religion is a magnet for people who like the idea of praying to a god because it means they know someone really important. (laughs) But apparently, praying can shape world events. Tony Blair has actually prayed with the leader of the DUP, Dr Gillian Paisley. (laughs) Presenter of You Are What You Eat, You Wafer Snaffling Fenian. It's thought that this joint praying might have helped swing Paisley behind power-sharing. Dr Paisley had always said he would not sit down with Republicans until hell freezes over. But because of global warming, hell will never freeze over. (laughs) Although I think it would be very pretty if it did. The way fire reflects on ice, all the demons having the day off school, (laughs) sledging and lying on the ground making snow devils. In fact, the Pope recently announced that hell really does exist and is eternal and begins with the words press one for technical support. (laughs) In any event, one positive thing about the old Orthodox religions is that they have tended to play down the individual, tell people they are worthless sinners who will roast in the fires of hell, which is quite grounding. The new religion is the belief in the self. Self Self-enlightenment, self-help, self-improvement, Self-absorption. People say... Yeah, I don't follow any particular religion, but I'm a very spiritual person. What do you mean, you're very spiritual? You talk to the dead, you don't walk under ladders, you leave carrots out for Santa's reindeer, or you just moon about like a nitwit with your head up your bottom. (laughs) People say... I'm very passionate. What, you feel things more deeply than other people do? You're easy, or you just dance badly to Latin music? (laughs) People say... I'm quite psychic. Oh, what? Just quite psychic? Just a little bit blessed with an unnatural ability to predict the future and read people's minds. Nothing special. How modest of you to play down your superhuman powers. It certainly puts the rest of us at our ease, mind boy. People who want to satisfy some sort of feeling that they call spiritual are often drawn to Buddhism, a belief system which is very much about the self. The aim of Buddhists is to break free from the cycle of physical birth and death. The Buddha says the transient nature of existence means it's full of suffering. The question is, was he depressed because he was fat, or did he eat because he was unhappy? (laughs) I suppose everyone who's searching for a faith they don't already have is looking for answers to questions about existence. If someone else provides the answers, that might save some effort, but also give you the comfort of knowing you won't be alone in the beliefs you choose. If you come up with a belief no-one's ever had before, after all this time, the likelihood is you've been in the house on your own all day and you're going a bit weird. (laughs) Karl Marx, building on the work of Ludwig Feuerbach, argued that religious belief is projection. What we seek in God is something we've lost in ourselves. That's why people are always searching for the key to life, which is probably just in their other trousers. (laughs) The secular left are sometimes compared to religious believers because of the fervour with which people hold left-wing views, and it takes a leap in imagination to envisage a whole completely different way of ordering things. But those of us who are on the left are not a religious sect. We're more like a dysfunctional family. You think you know all about us because of the noise, but you don't really know what goes on behind closed doors. So what does go on behind closed doors? Remarkably little, that's not of a procedural nature. Mostly we're working out rotors for things and then not following them. (laughs) There is a lot of love as well as a lot of shouting, but we're an extended family and sometimes, although you love your family, you fantasise about belonging to a different family. Like the Tories. (laughs) They've got a cleaner and nice things from Waitrose. (laughs) They don't eat on their laps in front of the telly. Their house is in order. Mum, I'm going over to the Tories.
1: What time are you coming back? You don't understand! I'm never coming back! (laughs) Okay, see you tea time.
0: Sometimes I'd love to be a Tory. A proper Tory. And I wouldn't just want to be some middle-class, middle-England, Pinot Grigio conservative. Not some nouveau riche Rotarian who's got a bit of an accent and a bit too much of a tummy to play tennis, convincingly. I'd want to be a proper, willowy, aristocratic Tory. Someone perfectly slim who never exercises. Perfectly English, but with a French mother. (laughs) Perfect side parting, but hair that doesn't flop about. Not louche, your fascistic hair, proper hair. I'd like to be asked to join the establishment. I'd like to be approached outside an umbrella shop by two very polite henchmen in trilbys who coax me into the back of a Bentley where I meet a Wilfred Hidewhite sort of character, only not quite so jolly, who says, Ah, oh, Mr Hardy, we've been following your career with interest for some time. <laughs> He then explains convincingly and with no cynicism or self-regard why socialism is understandable but wrong and then pulls his head off to reveal that he's an alien and says that everything is going to be all right when the mothership arrives and that Christ will come again in the form of Johnny Cash. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? Because we want answers and solutions on the left, so we're tormented and fill our time up with activities, like the WI with a grudge. (laughs) And we get called the awkward squad, but the anger that people feel about the world is genuine. And if there's a natural restlessness about them, you shouldn't necessarily want to correct that. Would you have approached the people who volunteered to fight against the fascists in the Spanish Civil War and said,
1: Isn't the person you're really angry with yourself?
0: (laughs) And in our defence, left-wing people are usually quite clear in what we're angry about. We're not among those people who are just generally aggrieved and you can get from speed cameras to the Middle East in too hard to follow steps. (laughs) those people who can't prioritise. I came out this morning, someone's tipped over the wheelie bin. I called the police but they won't do anything. And that's not healthy outrage that can be channelled into constructive activism. Don't encourage them. Don't give them a leaflet about the Domenezes case because they won't get it. They'll just say See, this is exactly what I've been saying. It's the same with my wheelie bin. And then they're off on a tirade about political correctness. They're probably scared to do anything about my wheelie bin because of the human rights. Act, that's what it is. And I think, oh, what do you know about the Human Rights Act? You've no idea what's in it. But then they're on to something they read in the Croydon Scaremonger. <laughs> there was a letter from a woman whose little girl came home in tears because her teacher had said you can't have crayons because it's homophobic. And the only question is: did the woman make it up? Did the paper make it up? Did the bloke make it up? Or am I dreaming this whole thing? <laughs> They're all made up, those political correctness stories, because only the left know the true ones, and we keep quiet about them, because we don't want the right finding out. (laughs) But there are allegedly all these schools where Christmas is banned, even though there aren't. Of course, there's going to be a battle over what kids learn, because they're our future, and we see them as our property. Naturally, we want them to have exactly the same worldview as ours, and the only way of ensuring that is to run it by them while they still think Pingu is a documentary. (laughs) When it comes to religion, I think it's wrong to teach children that there's a God because it's not proven. It's wrong to teach that the creation is true because it manifestly isn't true. I cannot believe a Labour government allows, let alone funds, creationism in schools. Religions have got cuter about pushing their opiates. They call themselves faith communities and they call creation intelligent design. <laughs> design? <laughs> Who would design the earth? Our earthquakes just knocking through? <laughs> I love what you've done with this rift valley. There's just so much more space. (laughs) All you need is some scattered boulders and you'll have added £15,000 to the value of the tectonic plate. (laughs) If God designed me, I want to have a serious word about knees. (laughs) Which seem to pack up just after the manufacturer's warranty expires. But schools should talk about religions and their ideas because you can't understand history or society without knowing about religion. And schools should celebrate Christmas along with Eid, Diwali and Hanukkah because it's important in a multi-faith society to pay lip service to cobblers when it's fun for kids. <laughs> if it involves sticking pasta shells to card, how harmful can it be? <laughs> and I love Christmas. I love it. And Christmas isn't just for Christians, it's a great story. Mary would have loved that baby, whoever the father was. She didn't even mind that he turned out to be a Christian. As long as he has two arms and two legs,
1: I don't care if he's a boy. If there,
0: if there really are schools where Christmas is banned, then the parents who want it back should say they want it back. Make the head watch the Mr Hankey episode of South Park. <laughs> Explain that Christmas is pagan-based folklore and therefore culturally valid. Don't become receptive to the ideas of the British National Party before you've at least made the effort to organise a petition. Don't let your slogan be Think Local, Act Mental. (laughs) That's what happens to people. They get so fixated about their parochial gripes, they fail to see the bigger picture.
1: Well, I don't necessarily agree with all their policies, but perhaps with the synagogues ablaze, the council will be forced to do something about the zebra crossing.
0: (laughs) And if there are schools where someone insists the blackboard is called a chalkboard, don't get all D.W. Griffiths about it. Just explain to them that cultural awareness and anti-racism are about the feelings and opportunities of human beings. Blackboards don't mind what they're called and aren't underrepresented in the judiciary. (laughs) It's a board and it is black. It's not being likened to a black person, and black isn't being used in a negative way. The point of avoiding language such as black-hearted or whiter than white is that the association of whiteness with virtue and blackness with evil has impacted on the way people see race. If you talk about black and white coffee, there's no implication that one is better than the other. The term black coffee is no more offensive to black people than espresso is to train drivers. (laughs) It's not racist to call coffee black. If someone called black people people without milk, that would be racist. (laughs) Albeit in a rather feeble way that the French would find amusing and acceptable. (laughs) on the other hand, saying with milk or without milk is perfectly coherent and sensible in itself. So I don't see why people claim to have got into rows about all this. You get these stories on websites. There are these fake libertarian one-man pressure groups claiming to champion free speech. They call their hobby the let's stop the kind of politically correct madness that's sending our once great nation to hell in a handcart campaign. And once you've scrolled through all the blather about freedom of expression and hard-won rights, you've finally come to the bit where they say the slave trade was a proud part of our heritage and black people secretly enjoyed it. (laughs) And there is always a nonsense message board on which someone claims to have had huge rows with people who say coffee with milk instead of white coffee.
1: So, I turned around to her and I said... I've been asking for white coffee for 30 years and no politically correct PC Matthew Brigade is going to tell me what I can and I can't say.
0: And I think if you're honest with yourself and you look into your heart, you'll admit that you didn't turn round and say that. A, because you didn't say that, and B, because if you'd turned round you'd have been facing the wrong way. (laughs) I'm trying to envisage the scenario. You ask for a coffee, the lady serving says... With milk or without? Outraged, you say. White! She says... Right then, that's one coffee with milk, 95p, please. Where are the raw materials for this argument? And what if you go in and say... I'd like a white coffee, please. And she says... Milk and sugar
1: at the end of the counter.
0: No, I don't want milk, I want... (laughs) Whiteness!
1: Uh, whiteness are in the sashing next to the sweeteners.
0: <laughs> if they have been told not to save white and black coffee, just how much pressure are they really under?
1: I'll have a white coffee, please. We can't speak here. Meet me in the alleyway by Kropotkin's Bakery in half an hour.
0: I mean... If she actually says...
1: We're not allowed to say black coffee because it's racist.
0: You can always say, it's not, though. It's not offensive to anyone. What's offensive is that on the menu, it says paninis, and panini is already plural. (laughs) It's it's the plural of panino, which is Italian, which is like a cafe in Italy advertising (laughs) rollsy. To which she can reply...
1: I know all that. I'm half Italian and my boyfriend's Afro-Caribbean, but I'm trying to hold down a badly paid job with an anti-union multinational catering firm, and I think there are more important battles to fight. And I notice there's quite a queue building up behind you, so unless you want to discuss apostrophes, I suggest you take your coffee and sit your ass with milk down. <laughs>
0: The term political correctness is now an insult that lumps together stretches that are silly and miss the point with sensible approaches to sensitive issues. Political correctness and the nanny state are the twin bogeymen of contemporary conservatism. When snow causes school closures, right wing people fulminate that it's political correctness gone mad. No, it's not. It's the nanny state gone mad. You've only got two ideas. At least try and keep them running in parallel. <laughs> And what is wrong with the idea of a state that is proactive in making sure people are safe and are treated properly? In conclusion, my beliefs lie somewhere between libertarian socialism and authoritarian anarchism. I think what I really believe in is a truly benevolent dictatorship, but utterly benevolent, Mark you, totally benign tyranny, kindly despotism. The kind of society in which you're on your way to work and a van forces your car off the road and hooded men drag you out of the car, bundle you into the back of the van and drive you home and put you back to bed for a couple of hours. (laughs) Good night. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred National Treasurer Alison Steadman and plucky newcomer Ewan Bailey. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC.